We want to welcome you to uh, Plum Creek Chapel this morning, and I hope everybody had a great week. Looking forward to a wonderful Lord's Day today as we spend time in His Word. Uh, Let's open up in a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you for this new day, the beautiful weather today, and thank you for the privilege we have as uh, your children, brothers and sisters in Christ, coming together to uh, to just really nourish our souls, Lord. Uh, We thank you that in your divine design, you established the local church as a place that Uh, believers can gather each week and assemble together to study your word and learn and grow and and just to strengthen our faith and Lord, we just give you this time today not only this hour but the hour to come uh, and pray that uh, you would use it for your glory and we pray that if there's anyone uh, watching or or here in the building that doesn't know you that today might be the day when the spirit of God convicts them uh, of their need for salvation uh, of sin and righteousness and judgment and then in simple childlike faith they respond and trust in your son and our savior for eternal life and it's in his precious name that we pray amen all right a couple of great uh, uh, resources for you this week I wrote an article on Wednesday called Satan's counterfeits and that I just learned uh, yesterday was uh, put on Harbinger's daily Uh, so that's uh, always encouraging just gets it out there to more people but it's a short article you can read it in a couple of minutes and uh, it was prompted by a conversation I had with somebody here uh, during one of our sessions. I can't remember if it was a Wednesday or Sunday, uh, but it just kind of got my wheels turning about the different ways in which Satan tries to counterfeit good. You know, he, everything the Lord does is for good. Uh, every good and perfect gift comes from above, James tells us. But Satan, from the beginning, has been trying to counterfeit. So I think you'll find that an interesting uh, Read And then our Tuesday podcast this week was on the distinction between the rapture and the second coming. So if you haven't listened to that, you can listen to that wherever uh, podcasts uh, are found. Just search for Not By Works Ministries. uh, Or if it's easier, just go to notbyworks.org and click on podcast and you'll see it uh, listed there. The podcasts are always in date order. And so uh, at this point, we've already had another Wednesday uh, podcast, so it might be the second or third one. But you'll find it there in the list. Uh, very relevant to what we've been talking about in this series, uh, and I basically went through about five or six different uh, things that people are confused about that lead to a confusion between the rapture and the second coming. In other words, if you don't understand these five or six things, then you're quite likely going to end up being confused about the biblical teaching on the rapture uh, and the second coming. So I encourage you to check that out. So last week, uh, we, we sort of laid the groundwork for our discussion of the eternal state. Remember, we're working through uh, a lot of the material that's in the book, What Lies Ahead. If you don't have a copy, feel free to pick one up out in uh, the lobby as our gift to you. If you're watching uh, online, you can go to notbyworks.org and uh, click on the store, and you'll find that uh, book uh, listed there. Uh, But we actually didn't get to uh, Revelation 21 and 22 and the discussion of the eternal state because... Uh, we had some great questions, great interaction, good uh, Q&A uh, last week as we kind of talked about some of the foundational elements leading up to it. And I want to do that again. I want to introduce uh, the topic of the eternal state with a couple of more sort of foundational things that I know we've talked about, but it's been many, many, many weeks going way back in this series, and we're always picking up new uh, folks and uh, online. And so I think it, I just want to try to lay the foundation so that you can keep the eternal state in perspective. This isn't just theological minutiae. This is really foundational to God's plan of the ages. And 
of all the things we study in Scripture, understanding God's plan of the ages and where it's leading should bring us the greatest comfort, especially when we talk about the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and, and what all is involved in that. So I'm hoping uh, to really drive that point home and sort of, again, set the table for some of the characteristics that we're uh, going to look at. And so to do that this morning, I want to talk about the five major biblical covenants. You know, when you study the end times, and I talk about this in the book, many people think, okay, Revelation. They go immediately to the book of Revelation. But the study of the end times has to begin in Genesis because that's where God's plan of the ages begins. And over a period of 1,500 years, uh, through you know 66 books in the Bible as we now have it, using 40 different human authors in three different languages, God unveiled a plan that he wants us to know. And this book, according to Peter, contains everything we need for life and godliness. And so uh, understanding the beginning is critical for understanding the end. I mean, think about it. You could watch... Uh, you know, you could take one of the most critically acclaimed films of all time, most popular, highly, uh, you know, acclaimed, and, and if you just watch the last 30 minutes of it, you're not going to really appreciate it. You, you, you don't really understand the context. You don't understand really why this is such a powerful ending or how things were resolved. And the same thing is true of God's Word. You have to understand God's Word progressively. Uh, we call this progressive revelation, understanding things as God un unveiled them to mankind. And so uh, that's why we spent some time many months ago uh, talking about the five major biblical covenants, which are, starting in Genesis 12, the covenant God made with Abraham. We call that the Abrahamic covenant. And then a covenant he made with the children of Israel that's recorded in Deuteronomy 30 and also referenced in Genesis 15 earlier, at least the boundaries of it. We call that the land covenant. Now, sometimes you'll hear that referred to in the literature as the Palestinian covenant, but a lot of people um, kind of stumble over that term Palestine because of current geopolitical things and understand that the land belongs to Israel. It's been granted to them by God, which is what this covenant's all about. And so uh, a lot of scholars have taken to calling it the land covenant now. And then you've got the covenant with David that God made in 2 Samuel 7 in which he promised that uh, a king in his line would take the throne and reign forever. And, uh, and of course, that has not been fulfilled yet. And then Jeremiah the prophet, about 500 years or so before Christ, promised a new covenant <clears throat> and describes it in great detail. It's also described in Ezekiel 36 and referenced in other Old Testament prophets. But it's first introduced in Jeremiah 31. Uh, now, of these four covenants that you see on the screen, the first three were actually made at the time that they were introduced by God in His Word in the Old Testament. The Abrahamic covenant was made with Abraham and ratified. The land covenant, same thing. Uh, the Davidic covenant, same thing, made and ratified. The new covenant was slightly different only because it was predicted, it was prophesied. I will make a new covenant with my people. And that covenant was actually ratified at the cross. Remember the night before Jesus was betrayed in the garden, he said, instituting the Lord's Supper, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so the shed blood of Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, became the ratification of the new covenant. Uh, but these are four covenants. And then the fifth and final one is the Mosaic covenant, <clears throat> which was given as a rule of law, of course, on Mount Sinai <clears throat> to the children of Israel through Moses. <clears throat> excuse me, and we read about this in Exodus 19 and 20. 
you'll notice that I've got Mosaic Covenant in a different color, and that's by design, because these first four covenants are unconditional covenants. They are I will statements. Their fulfillment depends solely upon the one making the covenant, in this case, God, the eternal creator of the universe. The Mosaic Covenant was not an unconditional covenant. It was a conditional covenant, and it was an if-then statement, not an I will statement. If you do this, then I will do this. And it was essentially a rule of law that was put in place until Christ came, until the church age. Now we're under the Spirit's guidance, the law written on our hearts. We talked about this a few weeks ago in our study through the book of Acts during the 10 o'clock hour when I shared a message called Law and Grace. Um, but it's these first four covenants that lay the foundation for what we're talking about as we come to the eternal state and the new heavens and the new earth. And so I've previously charted these out, these first four covenants, uh, this way in what I call God's covenant a promise. Remember the Abrahamic covenant is the foundational covenant. And within the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3, we see three aspects that are referenced there. Land, seed, and blessing. So God told Abram, you're going to have this land, all nations uh, of the earth, your, your nation, your seed will be as numerous as the sand of the sea, and all nations will be blessed through you. And then as time went on, God reiterated with mankind those three aspects of the foundational Abrahamic covenant through three subsequent unconditional covenants. So those four boxes that you see on the left there uh, in blue, the Abrahamic, the land, the Davidic, and the new correspond to those four unconditional covenants we just talked about. But God reiterated the land aspect uh, through an actual land covenant. And by the way, he, he gave the boundaries of the land that was promised to Israel. It's an unconditional covenant. It's, it's a guaranteed to happen. And to this day, Israel has never occupied the land as described in Genesis 15. They've, according to Joshua, they've had the rights to it at one point, but they've never actually moved in, if you will, to the outer edges. And I, when we talked about this months ago, I showed you a chart of a map in which it showed modern-day Israel. I don't think I have that here. Let me just make sure. It would be really cool if I was smart enough to put that in here today, but I wasn't. Sorry. Um, so, uh, and it showed the boundaries of the land according to Genesis 15, and it's massive. And, you know, you read Ezekiel 40 to 48, and you see the temple that, that will ultimately be built in the millennium, and how massive it is, and how glorious it is, and we talked when we went through characteristics of the millennium how there will be topographical changes, geographic changes, and the land will expand. So either God's a liar or Israel still has to inhabit the land. And so anybody today that teaches the church is Israel and the church is fulfilling the kingdom promise is absolutely wiping out one-sixth of the Bible that deals with specific promises to Israel that have not yet been uh, fulfilled. Uh, so And then the Davidic covenant... Again, same thing, that it reiterates the seed blessing. And remember, the ultimate seed of Abraham, capital S, is Jesus. Paul tells us that uh, in the New Testament. And you know, God promised to David that both in reference to his son Solomon, but also if you read the text in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16, it, it obviously includes his ultimate seed, a reference to Christ, uh, the, the Messiah of Israel because the nature of it is such that Solomon couldn't have fulfilled it because Solomon's dead and it says he will reign forever. Uh, and then the new covenant, 
as we mentioned, was reiterated, and it reiterates the blessing aspect. So way back in Genesis 12, 2,000 years before Christ, God gave Abraham a promise that one day the whole earth globally would be blessed through his seed. That certainly hasn't happened today. As we look at the many, many, many passages that refer to Christ's coming to inaugurate the kingdom and the description that those passages give, nothing about today uh, could be said to be fulfilling that. I mean, for example, Isaiah 9 talks about when the uh, king comes, the, all the governments will be upon his shoulders. I mean, have you looked around lately? Are there any governments that are not in subjection to Christ today? Absolutely. Uh, all of them. But, uh, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of different uh, passages. He's going to rule in perfect peace and justice. Are there any, any inequities today? Any unfairness? Any injustices? Of course there are. Uh, you know, rule with a rod of iron. So those things have not uh, happened yet. But the reason I went through this is, again, to show you that we're headed toward the kingdom age. Remember, Paul talks about in Romans 9 through 11 how God has temporarily set aside Israel for the present age, which elsewhere uh, he, in uh, uh, Ephesians 3 he calls a mystery. Uh, and I talked about this a little bit on Tuesday. But uh, a mystery in Scripture, it's the Greek word mysterion, it just means something previously undisclosed but now being revealed. So we translate it mystery in English because it's a cognate, but it doesn't mean the same thing that we think of in English. Mystery often kind of implies something uh, hard to understand or mystical or something you have to solve. That's not the way the biblical term is used. It just means something that God has kept hidden until now, and now he's unveiling. And Paul specifically says that the church was a mystery not known in previous ages. So you won't find the church anywhere in the Old Testament. The church focuses on national promises to Israel. Then God in his divine design unveils the church, which was established on the day of Pentecost in 33 AD. And the church serves its purpose. Remember, we talked about the differences between the purposes for Israel, uh, things like testifying to uh, the unity of Yahweh. Here, the, the Shema, here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The pagan nations around Israel worshiping false gods were to look to Israel and recognize that their God is the one true God. Um, uh, you know, they were to be an example to other nations that, you know, God blesses those nations that follow him. Uh, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Um, they were the ones that received God's revelation predominantly. They produced the Savior. That's what the Abrahamic covenant's all about. And it even goes back before Genesis 12 to Genesis 3.15 when God told the serpent, you know, the woman's seed, capital S, will crush your head someday. And then Israel was to be the center stage once again during the global kingdom of peace. But the church is different. And the church has its own purposes as we see from Scripture. Acts 15 tells us it's to call out a people for his name. I've often pointed out that you know, Jews are not called Yahwehites, but Christians are called Christians. We bear the name of Christ. And we're going to talk about that in the second service today, the persecution of the church today. Um, we're to showcase in high definition the exceeding riches of God's grace and mercy. Even though God has always been a God of grace, His attributes are eternal, He's immutable, He doesn't change. It's not like grace was invented or came on the scene at the cross, but the cross demonstrated God's grace like never before. And so, you know, it's the greatest picture of God's grace. Obviously, Paul tells us in Romans 10, that one of the purposes of the church was to get Israel, or sorry, Romans 11, the beginning of chapter 11, 
one of the purposes of the church is to get Israel's attention. That someday when Christ comes back, having seen the blessings in the church that are sort of a foretaste of what's to come in the kingdom, Israel will this time, instead of crowning him with thorns, they'll say, Ah, oh, I want that intimacy, that closeness, that special relationship that God's people have in Christ, which is unique to the church age. Obviously, we read about how one of the purposes is to showcase God's wisdom to Satan. I've talked a lot about that, haven't I? Uh, about the spiritual warfare and battle and the spirit of the Antichrist that is alive and well and how many Antichrists are alive and well. And, um, you know, the church here is, uh, you know, to uh, be on our knees fighting this battle spiritually and showing, uh, reminding Satan who wins the battle. Uh, and then, of course, one of the purposes, according to Luke 19, is to prepare a body that will help reign, uh, a governing body that will help rule and reign with Christ. Remember, Jesus told the disciples, you will sit on 12 thrones with me. So uh, the, there's definitely a distinction between the church uh, and uh, Israel. And, and Israel has been temporarily set aside, but Romans 11, 26 and 27 reminds us that someday the deliverer, Christ, will come back, take the throne, and the kingdom will be finally inaugurated. So if you see the cross on the screen there, uh, let's see, I was going to try uh, using my little uh, pointer here. Um, I don't know if you can see that red pointer on the screen, but the cross here in this whole section right here is where we live today. We live in the present church age, a mystery, something previously undisclosed in the Old Testament. And someday that God's going to call the church home, and the spotlight will once again shift back over here to Israel in the kingdom. That's the reason all of these covenants that you see over here on the left, I, I show the line coming over here. They've been all established. They've all been ratified, but they have not been inaugurated. So we are not living in the kingdom today. It's kind of like when we have an election in November and the results are ratified. Of course, that's becoming more and more difficult to do in our country anyway, but in theory, the hypothetically, you have an election, the results are certified. When's the inauguration? Not till January. Well, we're, we're living in that age between the kingdom promises of God being fully ratified and promised and pledged unconditionally and their fulfillment in the kingdom uh, someday. So essentially what I'm, the reason I went over this is that this covenant program of God with those four unconditional covenants represents the guarantee of the kingdom that is coming. It's, it's the title deed, if you will, to the land and to the kingdom. And uh, since that is true, if God's word is true, and of course it is, then we can look forward to uh, the eternal state and the blessings that it uh, has in store for us and uh, what a day that will be. I mean, we talked about the millennium, and of course that too for church-age believers, is going to be an incredible blessing and have unique characteristics all its own. But the, the, the millennium is really just a, a foretaste of the ultimate eternal kingdom with the new heavens and the new, or, uh, new earth. So I talked about how from Satan's perspective, he, he goes from order to disorder to the new world order. That's his plan. The Luciferian agenda is... is all through their writings, you, you see the, the mantra, order out of chaos. They've got to destroy so they can build back better. And so Satan is a destroyer, okay? Apollyon is one of his names. And uh, he wants to, he's the author of Confusion. He wants to come in and destroy. 
And then he thinks that what God made, even though we believe in God's Word teaches it was perfect, it was made in the, we were made in the image of God, and God saw that everything he made was very, very good after he created Adam and Eve. Uh, Satan thinks, no, 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 it needs, it needs changing, it needs help. We need to get rid of that and create this new world order. God, on the other hand, we see in, his, in the Scripture, goes from order to disorder at the fall when the uh, corruption of sin came in, but to reorder, okay, not the new world order. I mean, in a manner of speaking, you could call it new world order, lower N, lower W, but not the new world order the Luciferians talk about. So any questions about that setup? And then if not, uh, or if, if so, let's talk about it. And if not, we'll, we're going to next get into some of the wonderful characteristics of the new heaven and the new earth. Any comments or questions about anything, the covenant program of God or church in Israel? Maybe I missed it, but the kingdom is about the Jews and Israel. Maybe I missed it. Where is the church at that? Yeah, great question. So the question is, is the kingdom about the Jews and Israel, and what about the church during that time? So excellent question. So you have to remember that Israel is God's chosen nation, going all the way back to Genesis 12, and throughout the Old Testament they're called the apple of God's eye and things like that. So it is a kingdom that will emanate from Israel. It's their kingdom. But what was the purpose of the kingdom all along, if we read the Old Testament prophecies? What, why the kingdom? Why did Israel need a kingdom? The purpose was to testify to Yahweh globally. See, the, the, the nation of Israel, was once they were set free from Egypt, was supposed to cross the Jordan, enter the Promised Land, and follow the Word of God. Remember the blessings and cursings passages from Deuteronomy. And if they did... They were to be a light to the Gentile nations, and eventually the whole world would have seen and heard God and understood and believed in God and been saved, and Israel would have accomplished their purpose. But they didn't, right? They went in, they intermarried, intermingled with pagan nations, adopted the pagan rituals of the nations. And this, was, of course, was all part of God's plan. It's not like God was reacting, oh, no, what do I do now? I mean, God had this plan laid out in Scripture, but... At, from a human perspective, chronologically, Israel failed at their job, and so he set them aside. The church now is center stage. You know, through every era of God's plan of the ages, he has a group center stage that is his primary envoy. Today it's the church. And what's our command? Same thing, right? Going to all the world. We're supposed to make sure the whole world hears the gospel. We do not have a promise in Scripture that we, the church, will succeed uh, prior to the return of Christ. Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, 14, that prior to his return to establish the kingdom, everyone will have heard of the gospel throughout the world. But that doesn't have to be fulfilled until the second coming. And it's my view that uh, that will find its fulfillment in the 144,000 witnesses that are set aside during the seven-year tribulation to go to the, all the world. And toward the very end, and I talked about this recently, if they haven't reached, you know, the uttermost parts of the earth, God's in Revelation 14 going to send an angel to preach the everlasting gospel to anyone who hasn't heard yet. So yes, prior to the inauguration of the kingdom at the second coming, everyone will have heard the gospel, but not, you know, necessarily before then. Now, if the Lord tarries is coming and we do our job, absolutely, we could see everyone know the Lord. But in any event, what I'm getting at is that God's plan all along has been for a global kingdom where everyone on earth, as Jeremiah said, from the least to the greatest will know the Lord. And, and that's going to happen through Israel. 
So it's a both and. It is Israel's kingdom, but it's, it's a global kingdom that Christ will be ruling from the throne in the rebuilt temple, uh, and everyone in the world will know of him. The church, you asked about, we have a role to play uh, in that kingdom. We're going to be serving and governing and, 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 and holding special positions of authority. Remember Jesus, uh, on the day before he entered Jerusalem for the final week of his life, Passion Week, uh, Luke tells us that the disciples thought the kingdom was about to start immediately. They thought he was going to ride into Jerusalem, throw off the shackles of Rome, and inaugurate the kingdom. And so Luke tells us Jesus told them the story of the, the, the king that went away for a long time in the parable to receive a kingdom. And then later he came back, and while he was gone, he told his servants to be busy until he comes back. And he gave them each one mina. Now, the parable of the minas in Luke 19 is completely different from the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Uh, different context, different audience, different purpose, different meaning, even different details. Remember, in the parable of the talents, which is about Israel, each of the servants had a different amount, right? parable of the minas, they all had the same thing, which is one life of service. And so, uh, but when he came back, the ones who had faithfully served him and been good stewards... He says, okay, I'm going to put you in charge of ten cities. I'm going to put you in charge of five cities. And so some people won't be in charge of anything. You know, you'll just be in the kingdom and enjoy it. But there's clearly rewards. That's what the Bema judgment is all about, which is unique for the church. And if you read through Scripture, I have a whole chapter on that in the book. But there's all kinds of rewards, types of rewards that are mentioned for believers. And there's also all kinds of acts and actions that are rewardable. For example, martyrs receive a special reward in the kingdom, um, and you know so forth. So, and, and shepherds that shepherd the flock well, elders that shepherd the flock receive a special reward in the kingdom. There's all kinds of rewards. I list them all in, in that chapter. So, it's a to summarize, it's a global kingdom, centered in Israel, emanating from Israel. That's the capital nation of the world, if you will. And, we're, and by that time, we're back to globalism, not nationalism. Remember, I've talked before about how God's plan goes from globalism to nationalism after the flood. We're still living in nationalism today, and we should resist any attempt to globalism until Christ comes back to take the throne. Globalism is not God's plan. <laughs> National sovereignty is God's plan. So that's why we resist the World Economic Forum and the UN and Klaus Schwab and all those folks. Um, but it will come full circle back to globalism. And so even though it's emanating from Israel, it's a global uh, kingdom. It's a great question. Anybody else? Yeah. Maybe on your slide about Israel and the church, the five points. Uh huh. Yeah, so you can, the church slide. Oops. I'm going to make a, a broad statement. It would appear today that the church is waning. It is, it's not doing these things. Yeah, it would. a broad statement. But to another sign that we're getting closer to the rapture the end times. Absolutely. So the comment is, if you think about the purpose of the church and what we're supposed to be doing, it seems like we're waning today and not fulfilling our purpose. And is that a sign that we're getting closer to the return of Christ? Absolutely. Now, I get that not from Second Thess 2, where a lot of people you mind might be going there, uh, but from 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 4, for example, 1 Timothy 4 says, 
Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrine of demons. Doctrines of demons, right? And then in 2 Timothy, he sort of repeats the same idea when he says, um, the time will come, for, this is 2 Timothy 4.3, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So, you know, for 2,000 years since the church age, things have been getting worse and worse. Second Timothy 3.13 tells us that plainly. Paul says, evil men and imposters are getting worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But the text says, as we get closer to the end of the age, we're going to see a, a much more uh, significant, a massive falling away. And so again, we're not setting dates. We're not saying the rapture is going to happen tomorrow. We can't do that. But Jesus does tell us to look at the signs of the times. And it's very appropriate to, to I think, conclude just what you said. It's just an observation, right? But clearly, you know, are we showcasing the riches of God's grace and mercy? Yeah, some, but not nearly like we should because most churches have fumbled the ball when it comes to the gospel. They'll, they're preaching a false gospel. We're talking about that on Wednesday nights. Um, they're not preaching a clear gospel. You know, at, at Plum Creek Chapel, we're passionate about the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel, which has been my driving passion for 30, over 30, well, almost 35 years of ministry now. Um, so, you know, honestly, if I'm Israel and I'm looking at the church, I'm not sure that I am going to say I want that because the church has become apostate in many uh, cases. And again, I appreciate what you said. We're not painting with too broad of a brush. We understand there are still good, solid Bible teaching churches, but they're becoming harder and harder uh, to find. So yeah, good comment. And did I see it? Yeah, Fred. So the church age in that realm. Correct. But the church purpose goes on. Yeah, so the church age, that mystery that Paul talks about, ends at the rapture. And then God's spotlight shifts back to Israel. We know that in a thousand different ways, but most notably because, as you see on the chart here, the tribulation is that culmination of the 490-year plan that God made with Israel. You go back and look at uh, Daniel 9. It's you know, He says, remember, he says 70 Shabuas. A Shabuah is a seven-year period. So 70 seven-year periods are 490 years. Here's the uh, description of that are ordained for your people and your holy city. Who's he talking to? Israel. So just like that covenants that we looked at earlier were made with particular people, a covenant has to have two parties. An unconditional covenant is dependent on the one making the covenant, but it was with Abraham, with Israel, and so forth. The promise to Daniel in Daniel 9 was with Israel. And so that 490-year plan for, is for Israel. Only the first 483 years of that have been fulfilled, and they were fulfilled literally to the day, as we know. And then Daniel's text itself tells us after the end of the 483rd year, some things are going to happen, such as the, um, the crucifixion of the Messiah. He doesn't call it a crucifixion. He says he'll be cut off, but we find out later that it's via crucifixion. That was alluded to in the Old Testament when it talked about cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. But we don't find out the details of the death of Messiah until we get to the New Testament. And then he also says that after the 483rd year, the temple's going to be destroyed. Well, that certainly happened in 70 A.D. with the Romans. And then he says, after that, yet future, at some point, 
the, the clock will start ticking again on that 490-year plan when, according to Daniel 9.27, the Antichrist signs the peace treaty. Of course, that hasn't happened yet. So the reason that you know, the church is not going to be on earth, besides the fact that the Bible specifically and explicitly promises that we will not be here when the day of the Lord's wrath is poured out, 1 Thess 1.10 and 1 Thess 5.9, but still, even understanding the prophecy itself has nothing to do with the church. So what I'm trying to show with this chart is that in blue, everything in blue is related to Israel and God's 490-year plan. Remember, Israel was just coming out of the 70 years of captivity that Jeremiah had prophesied. Daniel says, we're almost at the end. Lord, what comes next? And he prayed. And Daniel 9 is a beautiful prayer. And he's basically saying, Lord, what's next? In answer to that prayer, God gives him the next phase, the next 490 years. And we're in that plan right now. We're just in the what's called intercalation between the 69th week and the 70th week, the 69th Shabuah and the 70th Shabuah. And, and so everything in green is this mystery, this uh, church age that Paul introduces uh, in Ephesians 3 and calls it uh, a mystery. So we know the church will not be here during this tribulation period. It's all about Israel. In fact, Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. Who's Jacob? Jacob is a metonym for Israel. Um, and then it's, of course, the day of the Lord's wrath. The whole seven years is wrath. A lot of people misunderstand that, and I respect them. I just disagree with them. Um, but they don't understand that it, the tribulation starts in Revelation 6.1. Let me put that chart up and I can find it. Uh, with the unveiling of the Antichrist, the first rider on the white horse is the, uh, the Antichrist. And then, uh, and then the sealed judgments, here it is, the sealed judgments are unfolding. By the time you get to the seventh sealed judgment at the end of chapter 6, or the sixth one, the people are already running and fleeing and crying out, hide us from God's wrath. So the wrath does not start with the trumpets. It starts with the seals. That's clear enough. And the whole period of time is called, as we said a second ago, the day of the Lord's wrath, the great day of the Lord's wrath, the overflowing scourge. These are different names for uh, the tribulation. So church is not going to be here during that seven-year period. But as Fred alluded to in his comment, we still are, got, we're still, we'll always be the bride of Christ. So after the rapture, we experience the marriage of the Lamb. We experience uh, the beam of judgment. Uh, and we then will rule and reign with Christ in the kingdom. And then, yeah. So back to Ken's comment about, and you're uh, referencing First uh, and Second Timothy about some in the church or some will fall away from the faith. The falling away, right. Um, and going to your, your uh, Wednesday night teaching on Calvinism, were they ever saved to begin with? Yeah, so I don't. So falling away doesn't prove you're not saved. Okay, remember, uh, Christians can apostatize. Paul says in, uh, let me find it here, in Second Timothy, chapter two, verse thirteen. Even if we, note the first person there, he's including himself. Even if we are faithless. In Greek, it's apistis, meaning literally no faith. You've abandoned the faith. He, God, remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. So you don't get saved and have eternal life because you believe and keep on believing until you die. 
you receive eternal life at the moment of faith. Eternal life is a present possession received at the moment you believe the gospel. So when faith meets the gospel, you're born again. You become part of the family of God at that point. Obviously, it's a serious thing, as the book of Hebrews talks about, for a believer to turn his back on God and fall away. Um, but it does happen, and there are serious consequences for that. But God never takes away our salvation if that happens. Because at the moment of faith, our spiritual DNA changes. We become a child of God. Thirty-three things happen instantly the moment faith meets the gospel. We're justified, reconciled to a holy God, uh, declared righteous, uh, adopted into the family of God, uh, born from above, regenerated, so forth and so on. Sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, the baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ in the present age, all of those things. So that seal of the Holy Spirit is until the day of redemption. So what we're talking about here is the doctrine of eternal security. So apostasy, even though in normal, common, mistaken usage, doesn't mean go to hell. It just means falling away. And not only do we have the plain teaching of Scripture that promises even if a person turns their back on God, if they believe the gospel at some point in their journey, they're still saved. We, that's plain enough. Jesus says, for example, in John 10, 28, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. He didn't say I give you the possibility of eternal life or the prospect of eternal life or the potential for eternal life. I give you right now if you believe in me. So if you've believed in him, you have eternal life. Uh, but we also have examples in Scripture of people. I mean, John the Baptist died in a lonely prison cell questioning whether Jesus is the Son of God. He's in heaven today. Right? And, and we have other examples of people who, you know, for one reason or another, turned their back. I mean, what if Peter had been struck by lightning and died the moment after he denied Christ the third time and cursed him? Well, there's a lot of Calvinists that would say, well, he was never saved. <laughs> well, I mean, look, uh, I'm not in any way suggesting that it's a healthy, good, positive thing to turn your back on the Lord. Don't do it. It's very serious. Uh, but I am so thankful that my eternal destiny is not based upon my ability to hang on to God or some commitment I made to Him. It's based upon the promise of Jesus who said, I give you eternal life. So, back to your question. I just want to clarify that thing. Uh, but So, what we've been talking about is people that preach a false gospel... That, the, the fact that someone is preaching a false gospel doesn't in and of itself mean that they've never been saved. We, we don't know. I mean, I've mentioned before, I go back and look at some of my early articulations of the gospel when I was in college. I just loved Jesus, and I wanted people to get saved. And so I used all the non-biblical things, you know. Invite Jesus into your heart, and you'll go to heaven. Where does the Bible say that? Nowhere, ever. You know, ask him into your heart. Do a word search sometime for ask or invite. You'll never find it mentioned in Scripture as a condition for eternal life. Um, you know, walk this aisle, sign this card, raise this hand, make this commitment, promise to do this, surrender to this, pledge to do that. None of that. And, and yet I know I was saved. I was saved as a six-year-old boy when I trusted Christ for salvation. So saved people can unfortunately articulate a either cloudy, confusing, or sometimes outright false gospel, uh, and I've been guilty of that myself. Uh, as to whether they're saved or not, you know, that's between them and the Lord. Uh, they have to believe the gospel, the true gospel. Uh, so, yeah, great, great question. Anybody else? All right, well, let's look at uh, just a couple just to really encourage you of some upcoming uh, blessings of the eternal state. So if you want to turn to Revelation 21, that's where we're going to be kind of camped out. And I'm just going to kind of walk through here because this is where we get this teaching in Scripture. 
So it starts out, now I saw heaven and a new, I, I'm sorry, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, also there was no more sea. Now I saw, in Greek is sort of like next, next I saw, and it follows in the biblical record, the millennium, the great white throne judgment that we read about at the end of chapter 20, that really somber, sobering, somber event, uh, it follows the destruction of the old heaven and the old earth, which we spent some time talking about in previous weeks. We read about that in Second Peter 3. Uh, so that's important to understand that connecting word there. Remember, there were no chapter and verse divisions in the original text. They didn't come along until 1,500 years after the New Testament was written, 1551. A guy named Stephanus was kind of writing, transcribing the Greek uh, you know, New Testament, and he decided, man, I think it'd be a good idea to put some verse markers in here, and that would make it easier for us to study it. And that was the first time we ever had that chapter and verse divisions. And the rumor has it, by the way, Stephanus was doing this while riding horseback on the circuit, preaching, 1551 this was, and that some of our strange verse divisions that we have in the New Testament are because as a horse would hit a bump or jump, his pen would drop, hit hit in a certain spot, and he'd go, oh, well. I mean, he couldn't just hit delete or backspace or get out his whiteout. <laughs> whiteout for you younger people is what we used to use before computers. But anyway, uh, he just had to go with it. So, uh, so this word now flows immediately after the statement about the great white throne judgment that anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so then it says, now I saw heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. We learn more about the manner in which they pass away from Second Peter. But then notice that last little phrase there, kind of interesting, stuck in there. Also, there was no more sea. Is that a, is that a good woo? Why, why do you say that? You don't like the sea? You don't like the sea? You're not a beach person? Well, you live in the right spot. I don't think there's a beach very, very near here. Uh, so... This is a complete and utter change in life as we know it. Okay, remember we talked about how this isn't just a renovation. The entire earth is under the curse of sin and has to be destroyed. And God recreates it. Um, last time we looked at this chart last week, how God's purpose comes full circle. You know, it starts with creation, creation of the world, the nations, Israel, and the church. And then of course, because of the fall and curse of sin, it, we see redemption. The rapture of the church, the restoration of Israel to the land, the retribution of the nations, and ultimately the redemption of all uh, creation. So, um, so it's interesting that he that the sea tends to correspond to sin, qu quite frankly, and you see this throughout the Scripture, but most notably with the great flood. The global flood was an instrument of judgment, right? Prior to uh, that time, you never had rain. Remember, everything was perfect in you know, the Garden uh, of Eden prior to sin. Now, we believe it wasn't very long before sin entered. We can only speculate, but based on the table of nations and the timetables we see in Scripture, and just also based upon the fact that uh, Adam and Eve didn't have children until after the fall, and you know, conception would have been perfect prior to the fall, so seems like it would it happened pretty quickly but the point is prior to that you didn't have rain there you know i was driving home from denver last night 
we went to Denver, uh, and you know, looking off in the distance, there was incredible lightning. Did y'all see all that lightning off in the distance, Brent, when you and Wendy were driving back? Oh man, it was spectacular. Coming down south on, headed south on 83, and it was just, I mean, really a, quite a lightning show. And, uh, but you didn't have things like that. That's a product of the fall. You don't have storm clouds and floods and fires and those types of things. All of those are uh, a product of the fall and these days a product of the U.S. government and their geoengineering campaign. Um, but when you get to the new heavens and the new earth, we won't have that, and so there won't be water. Um, and again, the, the, the now at the beginning of verse 1 is clearly contrasted uh, I mean, no, I'm sorry, new in verse 1 is clearly contrasted with old. A new heaven and a new earth. What does that mean? Uh, so the, the idea here is just as spiritual rebirth brings newness of life, Romans 6, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, so too does physical regeneration bring newness for the entire created uh, universe. So what was renovated at Christ's return after the Battle of Armageddon becomes completely recreated at the end of God's plan of the ages in Revelation 21 and 22. So again, if you go back to the end times chart, you'll notice uh, there's a uh, you know, period of time uh, here after the second coming, Daniel uh, chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, uh, mentions, you know, 30 additional days and then 45, another 45 days are mentioned in verse 12 for a total of 75 days prior to the actual commencement of the 1,000-year millennium. You know, it's during that time there's a lot of cleanup to do, but with no sin and no, you know, with no, un, uh, there will eventually be sin, but there's no unbelievers on the earth when Christ comes back. It takes a while for them to be born, and then like every human being, they're born dead in their trespasses and sins. So there will eventually be unbelievers on earth, but at first there's no, no unbelievers and no sin. So we're going to be able to clean up the devastation from Armageddon and all that stuff very quickly. Um, but it's a renovation is what it is. And, and, and so we're living in the thousand-year reign uh, on the present earth, earth, you know, as we live on it today. But it'll be, you know, better because Christ is here physically ruling and reigning. But it will be nothing like the uh, recreated earth in uh in the new heavens and the new earth. All right, well, we are out of time for, for today, so we'll pause there. We'll pick up with some more characteristics of the new heaven and the new earth. But the takeaway is what a day that will be. Look forward to that, to that day someday. So let's uh, dismiss those of you here. We'll take a break. We'll come back together around 10 o'clock for our service. Uh, those of you watching online, the live stream typically starts anywhere from 1025 to 1035 Mountain Time, so we'll see you back then.